Coffee with Humans is live, candid conversations between strangers who become friends. Made possible with your support. Subscribe, share, and comment on your favorite platform. Get Coffee with Humans mugs and more. Links are at coffeewithhumans.com. Thanks for joining me. We are live here once again with Coffee with Humans with my new friend, Luke. Luke, welcome to Coffee with Humans. Hi, Jason. This is exciting. I'm happy to have you here. Uh, we do need to get two very important things out of the way. Number one, for our viewers and listeners, and you know this already, Luke, because you're you've been on this on this chat with me for now ten minutes, twelve minutes actually. Um, but our, for our viewers and listeners, I don't know you at all. I've done zero research on purpose because I love I love this idea that you would come and honor me with this coffee chat, and I and we just like go cold turkey, and everybody's invited into this. So I don't know where you're from. And I don't know why you would choose to have coffee with me. So where, where, where are you from and why would you choose to have coffee with me? I, well, I grew up outside of Buffalo, New York, and then I lived in Detroit for 10 years. And then I moved to Dallas and then I moved to the Bay Area and I now live in Sunnyvale, California, where it's, if, if I could pick, I'm going to steal something from the opening monologue. I know exactly where I would want to have coffee with you and it would be in my backyard in Sunnyvale, California, because it is the name of the city. It's sunny. It's a lovely day. I would be so happy to have you right next to me eating some of my wife's cooking. She's a great cook. So we'd have some cookies. There's always beer in the fridge in the garage. There's tequila in the cupboard and there's cookies in the freezer. Come on by. That is a great intro for your house. Beer in beer. What would you say? Beer in the garage, the tequila. Uh, cookies in the garage, tequila in the cupboard, cookies in the freezer. That's amazing. That's, that is quite the invite. I, I, uh, I would hope to take you up on that offer someday. This is good. Yeah. So why, um, why would you, what, what inspired you? Like, why would you click the button to have coffee with me on when you could be sitting outside? Yeah, because I can't be on a plane anymore. And, and a lot of people okay. who know me know that I am tireless in my you know pursuit of what I'm working on. I actually have 3 million miles, I kid you not, on American Airlines. I've been wow. consulting and coaching around the world for my entire career. And uh, I'm the guy who everyone hates because you sit next to me on the plane. I'm going to say, hi, my name's Luke. Oh. Who are you? What do you do? Because... It has created these friendships and life-changing events in my life. Uh, part of the forming of First Fruit was based on a plane ride from 2009, uh, uh, sitting next to a person who helped change my life. And so you don't know who, who will change your life. And when I looked at your webpage and, and I see what's on your, you know, your main page, it says, I help High-performing teams create meaningful, measurable solutions that change the world. Sign me up for that. I want to talk to this guy. <laughs> well, that's awesome. You and I are different on planes. Um, I, I put on my headphones and attempt to believe I'm the only one on that plane. I know. I know. I, I, I'm really that person. I think I try to respect. Like, obviously, yeah. if someone has that aura of don't bug me and they put on their headphones, I'm going to respect that. I'm not going to bug them. but I'm gonna try and say hi. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've spoken to people on planes, but I just like I don't know what it is about that. I I also maybe feel a degree of stress on planes. Maybe you maybe you talk to people because of stress or because it's your personality. I I enjoy talking to people, but I feel a certain level of stress on planes. 
and feel like, and I, I will instantly go asleep. I, years ago, I was on a plane from Chicago to, to um, Portland and we took off and then we landed and I was, I was like, boom, asleep through the whole thing. I thought this, something is weird. I don't know what's going on here, but I, and I thought maybe it's the stress that my body just like shuts down and I'm like done. It could. I, I, I have a lot of trouble sleeping on planes actually. So, uh, I do, you know, I watch my bad movies. I, you know, read my books, I work on my laptop, but I talk to people and, and, you know, we've lost a little bit of that just serendipitous coffee with another person, conversation with another person, because you, you can see it, right? People go to a coffee shop where they're standing in line. They don't say hi to the person next to them anymore. They crank out their phone and they, yeah. you know, they're on their phone. And I'm not saying I'm immune to this, right? A lot of times I'm like, oh, I'll get that one more email done or whatever. But sometimes it's just nice to say, hi, you, mm -hmm. you know, just hi. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Just an opener and then see where yeah, it goes. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. See where it goes. <laughs> so where's well, this going to go? Come on, Jason. I, I don't where, know, where man. Go, man. I don't know. I'm, well, I'm, I'm outside Chicago and it is sunny out here right now too. Oh, uh, Chicago is such a great city. It is so good. I will be honest with you. Um, this, this impacts our conversation today. So I'm going to tell you, I have coffee usually in a mocha pot. And uh, it's an Italian mocha pot, which uh, like bubbles up from the bottom. And I had a three cupper, which is like three ounces of espresso. And it just wasn't enough. So I bought a nine cupper. And then I drank okay. it all day. So Okay, so we better talk fast. I'm like, boop, 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 boop. if it feels like I'm like on it, it's because I am. Yes. I, but I took a walk yeah. before I got on this just to like try and like... Buzz it out of my screen. Buzz it out of my system because I feel like I feel like we're flying high. Yeah, yeah. No, there's and but and you know when you talk about coffee, you talk about the ritual of coffee. Every, yeah. You know, people who enjoy coffee or enjoy tea, um, there's typically a ritual, right? Mm -hmm. Some people like to grind the beans. Some people don't. They make it. Yeah. They and you and it's it's part of their humanity. It's part of and. High performing teams, they have food rituals, as you know, they have their style. I, I worked in one team where, you know, it really was the thing to go get Starbucks in the afternoon to go get our afternoon coffee. It was the thing, you know, in Europe, right? Biscuits in the morning with the coffee and the, it, you know, there's this whole ritual of tribal. Uh, yes. Tribalism on coffee. It's cool. Totally. I've talked about the, uh, the importance of coffee is as from a ritualistic standpoint for me, because I do, I actually started being very intentional, very intentional about establishing a ritual around coffee because it slowed me down to take that moment in the morning. Cause I can't drink it at night. I like, if I was this caffeinated at night, like all bets are off on the rest of the week. Like, but the. The morning time of t just uh, almost like, um, this is going to sound so weird, but like almost like caressing the morning or allowing the morning sure. to caress me. It's like, I'm just going to sure. relax into this moment where, you know, the sun is coming up or maybe not like today was fog. It was like foggy and just a bit chilly. And I sat out on the deck and I drank too much coffee. Um, and it was just, be I was, it was beautiful just to sit there for a moment and go, okay, I'm a person. I'm going to be present in this moment and then I'm going to move on and I'm going to be present in all the other moments that need me today. Yeah. That's brilliant. And, and that's what the ritual on, that's what we can do. Yeah. So you sparked my interest. 
clearly, I think you knew this. If I know something about you, uh, which I, I sort of have a superpower for getting to know people. Um, you've consulted all over the world and you have 3 million, you said 3 million airline miles, which is maybe even three and a half million, which is it's super impressive. That's, you've been in the air a lot. Yeah. <laughs> what yes. kind of stuff have, what kind of stuff have you done? Well, so I have worked on a variety of things like you have strategy. I tend to work in, well, I, I primarily work in the domain of software development or okay. people who are building software systems that that's what I know. There's a branch of software development that 20 years ago was considered radical and now it's considered mainstream known as agile software development. Uh, there's a couple of different methods in the agile community. The dominant method is something called the scaled agile framework, which is how large organizations organize teams and teams of teams to keep them, uh, building the right kinds of systems. Uh, I have worked in the domain of portfolio management and product management for numbers of years. So when I was flying around, sometimes it's to do in-person work with teams in uh, teams of teams. And I also built in my last company, a software platform to help people collaborate in a technique known as participatory budgeting, which we'll explain in a moment. But it was really designed to help organizations tackle the annual budgeting process because in most large companies, the annual budgeting process is just awful, right? You take these leaders who are supposed to work together towards common objectives throughout the year, and then you put them into the hunger games known as the annual budget and tell them to fight over the resources. So I was devoted to, to addressing that and, and fixing that problem. I love the visual of the Hunger Games that you've, yeah. that you applied to that. I was just, I was thinking of like, you know, when Katniss forever, like is sitting off and, you know, in the forest or something. And all of a sudden it's at the end of the day, it's like, there's like a song that plays and then like a number or whatever yeah. comes up. You know? <laughs> And yeah, it, some is, other it is like feel. budgeting. It, that's exactly what it's, happens in budgeting. They, they do that. They do that for the projects that that are good ideas <laughs> that no longer like that project is dead. So 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 participatory budgeting is a process in which you uh, have a group of people discuss how to make a shared investment. So the easiest way to think about it is: let's say I've got five business leaders and a $100 million budget or a $20 million budget. It doesn't really matter. We divide the money equally among the participants. And then you present the list of proposals to be funded or initiatives to be funded and you collaborate. Now, let's say that it was, I'll go small. Let's say it's five people, $20 million. Each person has $4 million. And let's say that there's an initiative Jason, that you really believe in, that you think is really good for the company, and it's $2 million. Well, you can fund it. You can solo fund it. But it's more interesting when there's an initiative that's, say, $6 million. Well, now you have to convince someone in that team to join you. So now instead of arguing against something, you're arguing for it, and you're comparing it to the other initiatives that are available. Right. We have done this in large companies, in small companies, in cities with citizens to help the citizens create budget priorities. And then I started doing it in schools 
And I saw this magical moment where you give kids money, except the school as a collective or a classroom as a collective decides how to invest that money. And what they learn is financial literacy at a really fundamental level. Like how much does something cost? Is it an operating expense? Is it a capital expense? Or is it both like a 3D printer that needs supplies? Mm -hmm. And who does this benefit? So we rope in civics. Is it benefiting the entire school? Is it benefiting a subset of the school? We rope in design thinking. Is it a good problem to solve? Is it desirable? Is it feasible? Is it viable? And we support the kids through this process and they make amazing choices. And in the process, they learn these very valuable life skills. I believe that. What, what age do you do that typically with? Do you think that the kids are ready for this? Uh, elementary through, through, uh, through, uh, through, through adult life. Uh, sure. The, so you, you could argue that, oh, come on, you know, a first grader can't really participate in this kind of a program. But the answer is they can, right? If you went to a classroom or you went to even first graders in an elementary school and talked about what they want, they will tell you things like we want new playground equipment or we want to get, you know, X or Y or Z more supplies for our art lab. Now, where younger kids admittedly struggle is in magnitude. We did a program recently for an elementary school, Hegel Elementary School in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, their classroom had $500. And one of the kids really wanted a new baseball diamond. So, you know, there's, there's magnitude differences, whereas in a high school kid would probably be able to realize right off the bat that you couldn't get a, a high school, you know, a, a new baseball diamond for $500. But that gives us a chance to teach our kids. Yeah. Right? It gives a chance to, to calibrate. Because many times if they've never had that experience, they don't know how to calibrate. Totally. I think that's fantastic. I, um, I haven't talked about this for a long time, but I, I kind of recognized when my boys that my, they're now 21 and 20, um, and I've got a daughter too. She's a little bit younger, but when my boys were going through this, uh, kind of pre like preteen year, 11, 12, uh, the typical time when people, when, when you start to feel attention, it's almost like now we are suddenly at odds over the smallest little things. I, I sort of reasoned and I don't know why I probably stole this idea from somebody, but I reasoned this idea that, um, this is natural. It's expected that you're attempting, you as a child are attempting to take responsibility and build a framework for your life while simultaneously being stuck in mine. And, yes. and all we are is we're coming up at, out at our boundaries. It's like, we're having a war. Well, we are having a war. We're having a war of boundaries. And this individual who's young is attempting to figure out how to structure boundaries and what boundaries can or cannot be pushed. And it's, it's like they're, they're expanding their responsibility and authority in the world, which is supposed to happen. All you have to do is unwind the clock uh, two or three generations and you find that kids had all sorts of responsibility when they were young and increasing responsibility, like real world responsibility. And now we're in this somehow like magical institution where kids stay confined in somebody else's responsibility, get to play. And then, and then it's like, focus on yourself, focus on yourself, focus on yourself instead of no, now you're part of the, now you're part of a community and you need to make big, big decisions because that's just what life is. And they're ready to take it. I feel when, when all of a sudden you feel like, well, we're, we're, I'm, I'm like, I'm having these arguments or whatever, like, 
over stupid things, like whether the dishes should or shouldn't be done or whether you did or didn't do the dishes. And it's, and it's like, well, I'm going to do them. Okay. I want them done now. I'm going to do them later. Okay. All your, if, if you were just left on your own as a kid, you'd figure it out. It's like you, and I think that I, I love this idea of introducing kids to greater, to greater responsibility in the things that they are responsible for. I mean, if you're responsible for using the darn stuff, why not introduce responsibility for taking care of it and for finding it and, and putting it in the first place? Absolutely. And this notion of participation is, is actually something that does even extend to the family. So part of our company's commitment is we're a public benefit corporation. Okay. And what that means is we can make a profit and we intend to make a profit, but we're after something more than just a pure financial return. We're after a social return also. And my, uh, my inspiration is Patagonia, the, the mm. maker of clothing, right? They, they're a billion dollar company. They're, they're very big and successful, but they're very committed to building quality clothes. And they'll actually tell you, look, if you buy a Patagonia jacket, it could last you your entire life. You only have to buy one. Buy a good one, care for it, and you don't have to buy more because fast fashion is harmful to the environment. Yeah. Fa the fast fashion industry of just, it's the new year and I have to get new clothing. Really? Why? Did it wear out? You know, what's going on? And so I'm inspired by Patagonia because it has this commitment to creating both a financial return, but also a, a social benefit. Uh, and our social benefit is being expressed not only with the software that we're creating for classrooms and schools, but for families. So there's three areas that we think participatory budgeting gives an opportunity for parents to include their children, give them more responsibility, but also educate them on their values and their processes. Planning a family vacation, uh, planning charitable donations, and mm. planning a home improvement. These are all things that starting at you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, you can include your kids and you can say, uh, look, if we go to this place, we'd have to buy plane tickets. If we stay where we are, we can do a staycation and we could spend more money on food or activities or other things that we want to do. And I, we've done that with our kids. Uh, we one year did a staycation and we had a great time. Uh, and we were driving around and doing various things, having a great time because our budget that year was very small for our family vacation. Ah, that's fantastic. I love it. I, I, I've, my mind, exp it, uh, I'm thinking down the road here and maybe you can, you know, you've done this a lot more than me or thought, you know, thought this through a lot more than me there. You, you know how, when you start, um, extrinsically, but you, you extrinsically get, um, uh, sort of acclimated to certain thought, pa thought patterns, right? It's like, he, we're going to do this. And it, it's sort of clunky, you know, you're like working through it. It takes a lot of time. And then over time, some of these patterns just become like, they, they just sort of develop in you. And it's like, it starts to become easier. And then there's a magical, like some magical time frame that it, it is becomes not only intrinsically motivated, but just so smooth that it's just a natural part of you. It's just like, oh, that's just how we think. It were, I, I would think that at the outset, some people are resistant to this process because it feels clunky. It feels like long, arduous. This takes time, discussions. Oh my gosh, why can't we just unilaterally make a decision, uh, you know, as parents or whatever. But the long-term value 
if if it really were our task to teach kids how to how to think, how to process their own worlds, the long-term value of this is you're remaking that kid 10, 12, 20, 30, 40 years in the future. You would remake an entire generation if you brought these types of principles into place. Almost yeah. like we've unmade a generations by yeah, removing some of these principles. Yeah, we've unmade it and we have to we've realized that we we've you know, we've realized that removing all struggle is really not the right way to go. And, you know, removing all risk is not the right way to go. And I'm not saying, you know, when I grew up, we didn't wear high bicycle helmets and we were doing lots of stupid stuff at the end of the street where that, you know, we called it the dead end because I did live on a dead end street and the back end into some woods and we were doing stupid stuff and we should have worn helmets. So we're not talking about like the obvious things, but, but now we're getting people who are saying, well, don't ride bikes at all. Or, you know, the equivalent of don't do anything at all. And that's too much. I want to, I want to, you, you said two things that I really want to pick up on. One is this notion of something that starts out as awkward and then becomes comfortable or, or skillful over time. You actually described playing a game, right? The first time you play Monopoly, you're not playing Monopoly, you're learning how to play Monopoly. It's not skillful. It's not even necessarily fun because you're looking at the rule book and you're, or, you know, one of my favorite card games, because I'm from, you know, the Midwest, we Buffalo people say we're more from the Midwest than the East Coast. So, you know, Euchre, if you know the card game Euchre, it's a super simple, fun game to learn, but it still takes a few hands to learn how to play Euchre. And then you're playing Euchre. So this notion of Having these conversations and doing this is, is usually what I see in, in schooled or businesses is you have to do something about three times. And so I have this phrase, one, two, many. And the first time it's novel, the second time it's interesting, and the third time you're starting to feel that comfort that you described. So what you described is actually a really well-known psychological phenomena where it doesn't start to feel effortless until I've done it a few times because I'm learning. But once I've learned and, and you see these better outcomes. So that's one thing I wanted to key on and I'll let you respond. But I have another one that I want to key on about this notion of, you know, discussions and, and conversations and action. Yeah. Well, I, I call it the cycle of success. Ah, some, a lot of times people get, I, I think of it like you got to get a, you got to go all the way around. It's like, I mean, if to the, to the tune of Monopoly, it's like, you got, you know, uh, you got to go all the way around the board and collect 200 bucks. Like the game would be kind of stupid if you never, if you just got stuck on, on that board, you never got to 200 bucks. Right. If it's like, oh, okay, I'm out. Right. The, and people, and I've seen it, I, I swear, I, maybe I'm an anomaly. I tend to push past these points. I don't know why it's just, it's, I could delve into it, but it's, it is what I do. Um, but I've seen it in in kids or in adults where they, they start, they're like, I'm going to try that. And they're like, no. And, and sometimes they're, they're like almost all the way around and like, I can't do that. And they unwind the whole thing, developing a pattern in their minds that of course you can't. Yep. I can't do it. See, I gotta prove it. And that, and then, yeah, and it's like, you gotta go push a little further. Yeah. Exactly. Take away from themselves, their own sense of accomplishment and success. I mean, yes. You know, I, I'm guessing we might parent the same way without even talking about it, which is, hey, you can sign up for a sport, but you got to finish out the season. Yep. You, you know, you, you, you can't start water polo and stop halfway through the season. You're on a team first. You're on a team. 
I don't care if you're riding pine or not. You're part of the team. You've got to be part of the, the, the training and you'll get your chance. You know, just finish and then you can choose again, right? But yes. you can't have this endless cycle of starting and not finishing because right. you rob your own. And to me, you're, you are 100% correct. You're building a psychology of, I, of stopping, not a psychology of completion, even if it's you want to do something different in the future. Yeah. So it's, it, it would stand to reason then using that same argument that by introducing children to the first part, the first part of planning and identifying resources and resource utilization and, and then completion to the usage. Like now we may, now we're in a maintenance mode and now we, now we've done our thing. We brought it, like we brought this thing into the world. We birthed it. We created it from nothing, just from our own ideas and gathering resources. It would stand a reason that bringing those children into that process earlier so that they can experience the whole cycle would, would, would change their, their ability long-term. Like, you know, like we're talking about over one, two, three, and many times their entire ability to manage their lives in all, in all sorts of aspects. Yeah. And one of the areas which I'm especially focused on, and there's research to back this up. So there's research from Arizona State University that shows that kids who go through a participatory budgeting program are more civically engaged when they become adults. So imagine you're, you're a fifth grader and you go through a PB cycle and you plant a tree, which is one of the choices that the kids are making in this elementary school. Then you go to middle school and you might make some improvements to the gymnasium or the gym equipment. Then you go to high school and you might tackle something more expensive like outside seating or maybe an upgrade to the library or with a larger budget chemistry equipment. And what, what are you being, what, what is being reinforced? First, your voice matters. Second, you have the ability to make change happen because you've got a budget. Third, you're working with a community defined as the community of your school. Now you graduate, you become a member of the community. Maybe you take a job, that's fine. Or you go to college, that's fine too, right? Whatever path in life someone takes. But you've had this experience of positive community engagement. You've had this experience of seeing actual results of your work. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's common. This, I, you know, I didn't invent this. It's very common to talk about time, talent, and treasure. So the treasure is the money, but you could, you contributed time to maybe clean up the schoolyard or paint the mural, your talent, maybe you're an artist, or maybe there's some other activity that you can provide. So by having these positive experiences, we can start to change that trajectory of civic engagement and return ourselves to more of a democratic ideal, which is democracies fail when we're no longer engaged in our democratic processes. Mm. And I notice I'm being very neutral here. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. Right. I want you to be positively engaged in your communities. That's really interesting. There are so many corollaries uh, between adults who uh, sort of defer, defer decisions onto authority figures. Like, well, you know, that we're here's what our leaders said versus adults who say, no, I have, I have skin in this game. This is, this is, this is my decision. It's your decision. It's our decision, right? It is enacted by somebody else. And that probably begins, you know, at a very 
in a very clear way in your participatory budgeting because like it's our decision and yet it is enacted or rat ratified or something like that by by the decision you know uh, some authority group um but we all had a part in this and there's a clear there's a direct um there's a direct correlation a direct uh something tangible that comes out of my and our collective decision making process versus just saying hey you know it's, I don't know, the administration said to do this, so we got to do it. Yeah, yeah. And we actually push that pretty hard. So the preferred process is five stages. The kids are involved in the planning. Okay. Then the kids do the ideas. The kids have to shape those ideas into actual proposals. And then there's a review step where the teachers will, the, you know, the teacher leaders will review the proposals that go onto the ballot. And the idea is if there is something that's inappropriate for the ballot, like let's say the kids were going to buy some new um, microscopes for the chemistry lab, but the school was going to plan an upgrade to the chemistry lab next year, you wouldn't want the kids to vote for something that the, the school was already going to do. Right. So the teachers will, before it goes to the ballot, will do a review pass. But here's the key. Once it's on the ballot, the commitment is that it will be implemented if the students selected it. Mm. So we've already done the pre-work to make sure that whatever set of items is on that ballot, if the kids pick it, we're going to do it. And of course, we're not going to do it for them. We're going to do it with them. So the kids, again, are in integrated into that implementation stage where we want them as much as possible to be involved in implementing those ideas in their school. That's powerful. So I... It's all, it's all neat. It's all interesting stuff. It's all seemingly valuable, right? Um, yeah. And I'm sure it's fascinating to work on. How do you prove that this is working and what measurements do you track? Yeah, so there's two proof points that, that we're kind of relying on right now, which is previously uh, published research. Again, I mentioned the Arizona State University research. Mm -hmm. So the other research that we're looking at is the Federal Reserve of the United States has done some research on the effect of taking personal finance courses or being exposed to financial literacy basics in high school. Hmm. And what the Federal Reserve found was that students who take a financial literacy course as compared to students who don't are two things occur. One, uh, they have credit scores that are 15 to 18 points higher than the students who didn't take the course. So right off the bat, you're seeing a very critical tool about modern life already being better. And second, there is a 5% reduction in personal bankruptcies in the first uh, five years after high school. And that's a critical time because a lot of kids especially low-income and minority kids, they go to school, but they've taken out pretty horrific school loans because they weren't entirely sure how to manage that process. And even after the loans are uh, completed, they're having trouble managing their finances in a way that honors their commitments. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing two pretty clear statements of, of impact. Now, we intend at First Root to add in our own measures and metrics through this process. We're a young company, we're just starting out, but we're looking at things like pre and post uh, engagement credit scores. Of course, that wouldn't work for the younger kids. They don't have credit scores, but sure. kids, once they get a job, they start to build out their credit history, right? 
So we're looking at also comfort with money. Like, can they pass basic financial literacy tests? There are some national standards that have been developed about financial literacy, like understanding the difference between a credit card and a debit card, understanding the difference between a stock and a bond as an investment, understanding, you know, what times it kind of okay to take out a loan. Like it might be okay to take a loan if you're doing a home improvement or buying a car, but most financial planners would advise that it's not really a good idea to take a loan out to go on a vacation. And having that conversation with your kids and having them exposed to that kind of stuff is very meaningful. Yeah. Even taxes. You know, I, I was working with a young woman who was 17 and she just got her first job in one of our programs. And she said, uh, Mr. Holman, could you explain my um, statement? I got my first statement. And this was also happening with my own kids, right? I have four kids like you. Uh, almost the same ages. I've got two older in, in college and two younger in high school. And every one of my kids, the very first paycheck, they're like, wait a minute, I worked X hours at Y rate. How come, well, what are all these things that took money away? And I'm like, okay, right. let's go through taxes. Being, you know, being taught what that is. Yeah, the, there's a thought that comes to my mind because I'm involved with a, I'm on the board of a new not-for-profit not startup that is, the goal is to change the um, beliefs around nutrition and what oh. it means to eat healthy, um, to, to ultimately to positively affect self-esteem in um, African-American communities. The uh, one of the critical elements as we were starting on this thing, I said, well, we need to publish some research reports on this. We need to measure some outcomes of this to prove that to prove that our methodology to, to affect change in this area is actually fun, is actually working. And I, and I suggested, and then now it's up to the research team, but my suggestion was to track leading indicators, um, instead of lagging indicators. I mean, track the lagging indicators as well, but the leading indicator, especially in youth is what do you believe? So measure the beliefs beforehand measure the beliefs after this intervention, um, because people act out of their beliefs. They act out of the, and, and beliefs don't have to yeah. be based on facts. They just have to be based on beliefs. No. And yeah, so, right, exactly. So change belief and you change behavior and then behavior you can measure as a lag, you know, a lagging indicator of what were the outcomes. Like in this case, you know, obesity, something like that. But the, the goal, the goal is to change people's belief systems. Um, and that, then that will, they will take that belief into the future. It seems that you're kind of trying, you're doing the same thing in a very, um, in, uh, a very hands-on way, which I think is just fascinating. I think it's, I think it's so, so needed, so valuable. What, what is it in your mind? Um, like, why do you, why do you care? Like what, what got well, you into I this? I want to go back to this notion of hands-on yeah. and what you're doing, right? I mean, you know, one way to improve nutrition, cause that's a big deal in the home and household is just getting the kids involved in cooking, right? I mean, just having them help cook the food they eat. And, you know, one of the determinants of, of health is, are you eating home-cooked meals, mm -hmm. right? That, it, it's almost that simple at many times, right? Like, because they tend to be healthier, but why did I get involved in this? Oh, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one, um, my dad died when I was four. My mom raised six kids on her own mm -hmm. and we were poor. <laughs> so I learned the importance of like 
quite literally, I have a notebook from when I first moved out and I track, I, 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 I tracked every penny I had. And I remember saying, okay, I have this much money this week. If I buy this much in gas, not even get a full tank. Like I, I would calculate like how many gallons of gas do I need to cover me? How much money is that going to cost? Okay. Cause I didn't want to spend 10 cents more on gas than I needed to get to the next thing and get me through that week. Um, then I, after I sold my last company, which was doing participatory budgeting for companies, right? It was professional business to business software. My clientele was BMW and Salesforce and Cisco and eBay and Transamerica and all these big names, right? After I sold that company, I had friends at some of the Bay Area uh, companies. They're like, come work for, you know, some of our big companies. And, and I was like, no, I don't really want to sell ads to kids. I don't really want to, you know, do drug discovery because I think some of the problems we're facing in our society like obesity, like the healthy images that you're talking about, like that's not a drug problem. That's like a right. more fundamental belief system and value system. And I read, I read two, two bodies of work. One was on the root causes of economic inequality and income inequality and their effects in society. So there's a book that I read called The Spirit Level. And uh, Jason, what it did was it, it's a set of science uh, that correlates health and social outcomes with wealth and, and income and quality. And the research is very, very clear. The more unequal the society, the worse it performs on every known dimension of health and social outcome. So the world's the worst, you know, the U.S. is the world's most unequal society. And we score the worst on trust, obesity, opiate addiction, Right. We have we have we have the, the most drug addicted, lowest levels of trust, worst infant mortality, highest incarceration rates, highest in homicide rates. So all of this is swirling around. And I think of the economics as two thirds of the problem. And I think one third of the problem is civics. So I started looking at civics and the research is also very, very clear. The trust in our civic institutions has plummeted. Here's a statistic from Tufts University. 24% of millennials think that it is a bad idea to run the country as a democracy. <laughs> like, see, let one in four, let that sink in because they have no experience of what a positive democracy, I mean, to be candid, our Congress and our national, now our local politicians, you know, the school districts, the cities, right? The urban planning that we live in, those, those people tend to do better, right? Because they have to. We have cities with, we get water, we get power, whatever. But when you look at the national politic, it's easy to become disillusioned where we mm -hmm. are. Right, and, and, and again, I'm not trying to argue for a particular agenda. I'm saying that the arguing that has created the current system that we're in is also creating a future generation of people who no longer believe in the system in any We're gone. He's gone. He's going to come back. I can feel it. We lost him. You're back. I'm back. You're back too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you were saying that the, the, the arguing in our society has created 
and then you cut off. Well, no, the, 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 it's, if you're a millennial uh-huh. and you just think about the last 10 years of your life, are you really believing that your government at the national level is doing good stuff? <laughs> Not so much. Yeah. Right now, you might see local politicians, but you're you're losing faith in the democracy and democratic institutions, and that's what the research says: is that our young people, and this isn't an American problem. Again, it's plummeting. If you look at democratic engagement around the world, right, you're seeing the 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 you're seeing a plummeting of this belief that we can make a difference. And so, again, we don't have to. I'll give you another strategy that you're that you may have be aware of and you you might even employ in your work is the strategy of small wins, right? I don't have to change every school in America all tomorrow. I'd like to, but I don't have to. I have to change one school and I have to let that one school's experience become the foundation for that same school to do it again and for another school to look at that experience and say, that was good. Yeah. And the strategy of small wins informs a lot of my work because once you get those small wins going, you go through that cycle that you talked about, you, you build the cycle of success, and then you can start increasing it. Yeah, totally. And I, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there's a significant corollary between what you're doing and, and this hands-on approach and allowing the students to have, and children, to have um, a, a real hand in decision-making and follow-through of, that, of those decisions and what we experience in government because our, the government has then it feels increasingly like people don't have a hand in it. And, and that does, and it's polarizing, it's a polarizing issue. People who expect to have a hand in it say, hey, where, why don't we have a hand in this anymore? And then people who expect to not have a hand in it go, well, you know, I don't have a hand in it. And so that naturally leads to distrust. Whenever you, whenever you feel like you're not in charge of something, it's, it's either a, you kind of back away from it or you fight for it. And that's it. And I think that's what we experience now because we have, we are developing a, um, we are developing, and I think it doesn't begin at the macro level, it begins at like you're talking about the micro level. It's the, it's the home, it's the school, it's the church, it's the, all these things that are really close to home. When yes. those, so, when those say, Hey, hands off, we'll take care of this. That's of course what you get at the macro level. And so it's, it would be no wonder that you know, a, a, a massive tenet of how the U S was formed of the people have a voice, uh, is shifting because students think they don't have a voice and that, that's right. And children think they don't have a voice and, and to some degree they don't, which is a detriment to them as individuals and a detriment to their communities and detriment to the society at large. That's, I think I love, I mean, I, I really do love what you're doing. Um, with that you, you, when you signed up for this thing, you said, I, and I, I actually asked you to title this chat, Too Stubborn to Give Up on Our Kids. Why the word stubborn? Oh, because in my last company that, you know, again, it was very successful. I thought, oh, I live in Silicon Valley. I've got this great idea on how to improve this, pro- you know, to address this problem in businesses. I'll go get VC funding. So I go off to VCs and they're like, oh, that's kind of crazy. And we don't want to find you. And some of them were very nice and some were very rude. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard, right? I'm like, okay. So I built the company from from scratch with a couple of really close colleagues. And, you know, it it sounds easy, but it's not, right? Mm. To bootstrap a business-to-business enterprise software platform 
is not easy. <laughs> yes. And you've got to be stubborn and you've got to be too stubborn to quit. And so I, people often joke like, man, that guy is stubborn. And I'm like, yep. And I'm too stubborn to quit. And now I've, I'm just channeling that I'm too stubborn to quit on our kids mm. because, and, and I'll give you, I know we're nearing the end of our time together, but let me give you a, one of the things that I think is really important for everyone to hear. Adults, when they think about this idea, they're instantly drawn into some bad John Hughes movie where all they see are kids partying and smoking dope and, you know, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And they're like, oh, we don't trust kids. Well, that's the movies. What about the real world? And when you look at what the kids do in the real world, they do amazing stuff. And some of it's a gut punch. We just completed a project with the Academy of American Studies, a high school in Queens, New York. They go through the entire process. The item that was the winning item of the top three items was more feminine care hygiene products for the girls' bathroom. And I brought it to my family because we talk about this in our family at dinner. And I'm like, so what do we all think about this? And my wife, you know, who is so gracious and so understanding, she says, oh, honey, you men are so clueless. I know everyone, you're an engineer. And I know you're thinking about like engineering things, like getting chemistry and, and 3D printers and stuff like that. And, and she said, but honey, you know, if you're a young woman and you're menstruating, and you don't have the right feminine care products, you're simply not gonna go to school. You're just gonna call in sick. So yes, we want all those other things, but before that, we wanna create a safe and psychologically comforting and, and a proper environment for our kids to be in school. Because if mm -hmm. they're not even in school, you're not gonna get all that other stuff. And they're not gonna go to school if they don't have those things too. And I, it was like one of those gut punch moments where you realize I never would have thought of that. I'm not that gender, mm -hmm. but I don't go to that bathroom. And, and you see yeah. this all the time where that voice and, and your work in strategy work, you know, engaging the employee's voice in certain strategy work is really critical because they see things the leaders don't. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, our, our, our culture, you, you, you know, you kind of touched on the politics at large. Our our system, the system that we are, I, you know, privileged to have, is a system that is designed to argue for what you need or want in a good way. And there's a yes. there's a book, um, how to argue or something like that. I can't remember the exact title yeah. of it. And um, and and the like, even the word arguing has a negative connotation to it, but really, it's just formulating formulating your opinion into a sensical manner that someone else can can understand. And get your point across, you know, like like a persuasive speech. And when everybody can have a voice at the table, then then you must rely on the you must rely on the sensibilities of people that they that they that there is a natural tendency for the good idea to win out. And and if you know this great experiment of the U.S. is any indication, that can that can indeed go on for some time. But it's also fragile because it begins when kids are young and what kind of responsibility yes. you allow them to have and what kind of voice they think they have and, and the processes for getting along. And we are supposed to, we are supposed to, just like I had with my kids that have that moment where it's like, boom, we are coming up on boundaries here. 
and we and there's got to be some give or take and and we will figure out the boundary but but we we must expect it there must be a sort of a harmonious discord um when it sounds like things aren't quite working and we will resolve it but we have got to have a framework and i think that's what you're putting in place which is fascinating to me yeah and also you know you're a father and you were talking about your kids and the choices they make you know, typically the amount of money that we give to the kids is actually not a lot of money. It's $2,000 to $10,000. And that usually comes from the PTA or the principal's discretionary fund. And in some cases, uh, we've partnered with companies like Salesforce to, to get money into schools. Yep. So it's not a lot of money, but it's, it's meaningful to the kids and they can do something with it. And I had one parent. We lost him again. Mm. Restream my streaming platform. I lost you again. I don't know if the, I don't know what's going on okay, with the platform. I, Sorry about that. Okay, I, I said, well, let's. Uh, I said, let's go back to the idea that a parent was complaining that you know what happens if I give them ten thousand dollars or we give them ten thousand dollars and they make a mistake and they buy something that doesn't work out. I said, well, let's think yeah. about it. There's two thousand kids in this school, so you're giving ten thousand dollars to two thousand kids. Uh, that's like fifty cents a kid. Okay. Uh, or, yeah. Um, so, um, or, uh, or five bucks a kid, sorry, five bucks a kid. Um, so that's a small amount of money, right? And the parents said, yeah, it's a small amount of money. I said, so let's say the kids buy a 3D printer or buy something and it doesn't work out. It breaks or whatever. They buy a low quality, whatever. I said, would you rather them have made that mistake in school supported by teachers where the teachers can actually help them understand through reflection why it may or may not have been a good idea, or would you rather not have them make any decisions at all until they're out of college, out of any support environment, and starting to make decisions on their own with a credit card or a debit card or buying a car or getting an apartment, and you're not there? I said, so what kind of mistakes are you willing to let kids make? Because they're going to make some. I make yeah. mistakes. Not every purchase I make works out perfectly. I've got a few power tools gathering dust. <laughs> totally. And if they're, and, and, and isn't school designed for training? Like we are, yes. we are training and there's gotta be a process for decision-making. Why not give them some skin in the game for the place that they are calling home? I mean, they, they call sometimes more hours of the day, you know, their school, but we just looked at hours, more hours a day at school than they spend anywhere else besides sleeping. And that's, that's right. Like, why not make your greatest, why, why not ha allow them to make an investment, an informed investment in that space rather than, rather than the prevailing idea that we just go in there and we suck the life out of it? Yes. It, 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 that's simple. I, it, we're in agreement on that. And, but it's hard. I mean, people, yeah. people remember their own mistakes and then they somehow want to prevent people from making them. And then sometimes, <laughs> you know, it's better to just get through it. Yes, totally. Resilience. Resilience was Resilience. the... Uh, I think they did a study on, on the greatest indicator of success and it has nothing to do with socioeconomic backgrounds. It has to do with resilience. How can you, do, are you able to fail and get back up again? And that, that, sing, that single character quality will make or break a person's success because a person who's not resilient can have all the things they need in the world. And as soon as they make a mistake, they're done. Uh, versus a kid who, you know, can struggle through it and just keeps rising again. That, so how do you teach that? Other than giving it saying, here, here's some stuff. You want to do this thing? Oh, it didn't work out. All right. What would you like? How would you like to change that next time? 
and yeah, allowing and, them and to learn through that process. Learn? Like, what was the reflective process? I mean, we don't learn without reflection. We don't right. learn. And going back, I, I love the fact that you roped into this notion of the leading and lagging indicators and the outcomes. You know, once I start getting those outcomes, they give me the opportunity to have a reflective conversation about was that the outcome that we wanted? Did it have intended or unintended consequences? I mean, there's this very rich thing, but it's got to start with the students. Yeah. You know, project-based learning, student-led outcomes, direct control as much as possible. Yeah. And it's going to get a little messy, but that messiness is better than the alternative. Totally. And we're designed, we are designed to get messy. Anytime you throw relationships together, they get messy from time to time. And it's the, and it's the skills of figuring out how to cut through the, cut through the stuff. Like I, I talk about like raking the, so if a pond, right? If you take a pond and all the shit settles to the bottom and then you start raking that, it's just like, and it looks like what was once called clean water is all like, it's just full of stuff. The stuff was already there. Yes. And you have the skills to get through it if you start raking it. And if you can rake it more often, it doesn't get quite so dirty and you're able, you're able to get through it more off, you know, quicker. And I think uh, giving kids the skills to be able to rake the pond, get the stuff in there and go, okay, well, what are we going to, you know, how are we going to clean this up rather than somehow kicking the can down the road and then saying magical 18 or 23 right. or whatever it is going to be like, Hey, you know, here's some real responsibility. Good luck. That's Good luck. too late. You screw yeah, up. And, but by the way, you are totally bringing back a memory when I lived in Michigan uh, one summer, I really needed a little extra money. And uh, so I was hired by a guy who, you know, in Michigan, there's all these little ponds and it was this fairly nice community. And there was like, like 12 homes around this little pond. And they're like, would you, you know, muck our pond? And I'm like, sure. And then it was a tough job. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Right. Exactly. And you have a great memory from it. So let's give to get a little bit of a tough job. And they'll take some learning experience from it and and uh, and a story to tell. Yes. Well, Luke, we we are at the end of our time, man. This has been great. I love what you're doing. Thank you so much. I appreciate your openness, willingness to come on to Coffee with Humans with me. Uh, just fascinating. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you so much for hosting. Well, folks, this has been Coffee with Humans. It is a live, candid conversation between strangers who become friends. We are live streamed worldwide. Also doubles as a podcast. We are now up to 900 listeners a week. So uh, subscribe and follow on YouTube. Check out Luke at firstroot.co and we will catch you all next time. Bye-bye. One of the things I love about Coffee with Humans are the raw conversations I get to have meeting new people just like you. If you or someone you know should be on Coffee with Humans, go to coffeewithhumans.com. Remember, the only rule is no sales calls.